The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. A special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. We have a few uh, cushions up front if you're still looking for a place to sit. So uh, we finished uh, three uh, discussions, talks and discussions on karma last week. And uh, for those of you who are reading along in this complimentary text by Ajahn Sushito, some of you have this book or are reading it online. It's available for free online as a digital copy. Meditation, a way of, awa- uh, of awakening. Meditation, a way of awakening by Ajahn Sushito. Ajahn is just a Thai word that means teacher and like a monk or a nun who's a teacher. So his name's Sushito. He's a British Buddhist monk. Teaches often here in the States as well. And um, so those of you who are reading along, we're on 189 to page 218. And these pages have a lot to do with equanimity. And equanimity is actually a, a really good topic for discussion, for reflection. In a way, in uh, terms of how the Buddha taught, it has a lot to do with both the means, this path of awakening, but also with the fruit, like what is the experience of insight or the experience of awakening, the flavor of awakening. And you see this, I think, really in any authentic spiritual tradition, the alignment between the means and the ends, right? It makes a lot of sense that we wouldn't practice in a stressful way and then we'll end up with equanimity, right? So the, the flavor of the practice is going to have the vibe of what we're going to get in the engaging of the practice. The fruit of the practice is going to look like what we're doing all along in the practice. And this is not, I mean, this is an essential instruction you're hearing right now because one of the things that is off for us is when we're practicing, we're either using a wrong effort that's tight and has a lot of striving in it, in which case we're going to get good at being tight, or we're bringing to our meditation, this is especially relevant for those of you who've been practicing for years, where your your body and mind has learned a thing or two about tranquility, and so your practice has a lot of complacency, maybe a lot of calm, but no clarity, right? You just sort of slide into some habit that you learned over the years of your practice into some trance-like calm state. So what are you going to get from that kind of practice? You're going to get really good at being kind of falling into a trance state where it might be relatively peaceful, tranquil, but you're not learning anything. And so when you then leave your set and go out into the world, you might be you know, just as tight, just as reactive, just as unskillful as you've always been, but you have this little thing you do where you go, you know, you sit every day and you... And often what's off is the quality of our effort. And this, you know, what I'm going to talk about tonight, equanimity, you'll see that it really ties in with karma. 
Again, karma is that capacity we have when the mind is stable, when the mind is to some degree equanimous, open, not judging, clearly aware and some with some continuity, right? Then that mind can actually see the activity of karma, the intentional actions, intentional thoughts, words, actions, how it makes an imprint on the mind. It matters what the mind is thinking, what the mind is saying, what the mind is doing. It matters. And it doesn't matter if anybody else knows what we're doing because it matters because the imprint, the impression is right here in our own mind. I know I was thinking about that all day. I know I was worrying. I know I was judging. Right? It's made an impression on my mind. So we say, those who weren't here the, the last three weeks, we say that this mind right now, this heart right now, when we open to the kind of nature, the sort of force of our habits, the dispositions, when we look at that, that has been set in motion by everything that's been laid down in the past. Where else would we get a mind or a heart like this? This, has, this mind, this heart has been, in a sense, set in motion one mind moment at a time by everything that's come before. And so then we end up with a mind that has this sort of set of habit energies with this kind of momentum expressing itself like it is. Now, you'll find uh, in practice there's always a sort of chicken and egg issue, like to really have insight, to really understand the nature of the mind we need to have a calm, clear, you know, relaxed and bright mind. The energy has to be in balance. The kind of effort has to be in balance. But of course, to have that kind of mind that can see the mind, you need to have that kind of mind, right? That's the chicken and egg problem. So we just do the best we can, and that often expresses itself in our sits as a willingness to begin again, to start over. No matter how many times we fall back into habits, fall into the same pattern of worrying, the same pattern of judging ourselves, the same pattern of you know, fantasizing about something, hoping about what we want to be in the future or regurgitating something from the past. You know, it, it's different for each of us how, we, how our mind is conditioned to sort of fill the space of our life, but we all have habits, and those habits have momentum. They're going to express themselves. So don't worry that your mind has habits. They're go- it's going to have habits. The question is, what do we do when our habit energies express themselves? Do we give up and just sort of always do what we've always done, always get what we've always gotten in the past, or do we counter the force of habit with however feeble it might be in any moment of our practice, do we counter the force of habit with some expression of wisdom? And what is wisdom? Well, wisdom's that budding habit of meeting the moment in this balanced way. Okay, this is what's being felt. Like I mentioned in the guided meditation, sitting 
being right in the middle, alert, relaxed, and acknowledging. Well, this is what's arising. This is what's moving. This is what's being felt. Not content with feeling or seeing things on the surface, but there's an active part, right? That's what I meant. It can't be just passive, complacent. There's a real active part, even though there's a sense of relaxation in the body and mind, there's this active part. You could say it's a value or an intention to understand, to not be content with the surface, but really wanting to understand. And often we see that, that wholesome desire to understand, it really expresses itself as a willingness to have a continuity of awareness. Because we can't, the, the mind and the body, it's an active dynamic. It isn't a noun, a thing, like, oh yeah, there's Mark's mind. So the way to understand the mind, the way to understand the body is the awareness has to be continuous because anything that's a moving process, a changing dynamic, right? You have to track it to really understand what it is or what it isn't. You can't just take a snapshot, like even in terms of weather, one moment in time, that doesn't tell you really a lot about the weather, right? Because weather is a changing dynamic. Something's moving in, something's going out. So to really understand weather, we know what's, you know, what was and what's coming, right? We understand the causal, the conditional, the lawful unfolding of it. And it's the same with the mind and body, whatever you want to call this. Without that continuity of awareness, there's nothing's revealed, nothing, there's no insight. And that's really where equanimity comes in. You know, I'm, as I mentioned, it's a little tricky because hearing about equanimity, the tendency will be to, to try to be equanimous. But that's not necessarily how it arises, right? Because equanimity is that quality, that capacity to leave everything alone, to be alert and relaxed, but to leave it alone so the mind can really track it. Because another thing that we find, just in terms of deepening of understanding of anything, you want to more deeply understand your kid or your partner or some aspect of your job scene, or politics, right? So the way we deeply understand something is we, at least in moments, we have to leave it alone. Because if I'm actively trying to fix my kid, or my cat, or my partner, that those moments, I'm not going to be able to understand the underlying nature of my kid, my partner, my cat. But if I sit back in a relaxed way and just let the cat do its thing, let the partner do its thing, her thing, his thing, let the child do its thing, well, in that sort of open, clear, relaxed, non-judging, non-controlling awareness, I might actually learn a thing or two. And that's true with anything. If you've never been to Common Ground, you know, sitting back and observing, suspending judgment, 
you might come to understand what's going on here. But, you know, coming in with a fixed view, what you're going to do is, you know, your way of perceiving what's going on is going to be skewed. Because as soon as our mind has a fixed idea about who I am, about what's going on, who you are, it affects the perceptual process. So equanimity, this non-judging, or you could say impartial, or another way is open way of being, it's really the opposite of a fixed mind, a mind that thinks it knows. Whenever we're fixed, whenever we're identified with whatever perception or whatever meaning my mind, this mind has constructed, as soon as my mind gets identified with it, this isn't personal, but it happens. As soon as my mind's identified with something, then that identification, the fact that my mind is dependent on the meaning, the perception that my mind's constructed, then it skews how my mind is reading or understanding what's happening here. So we're deluded. So to counter that, we set in motion through our practice, we set in motion more, greater and greater equanimity, spaciousness, open, non-judging, non-controlling, not complacent, not sort of lax, not lazy energy, but not striving, controlling energy. That's that balance. And with that mind, the mind that's not fixed, then we can understand because there's no distortion in the mind. Now imagine if in all the different places, whether you're a social activist trying to uh, address the oppression and injustice in the world, or you're raising kids, which is its own, its own kind of activism, or trying to save for retirement, or develop your meditation practice. So whatever your thing is, or many things are, whatever it is, the way to deepen understanding is not to approach your thing with a fixed view. Interestingly, what makes us a powerful learner and, a, and therefore a creative engager in the world, a real force to be reckoned with, is to move into those places in our lives with equanimity, with an open heart and mind. But that's not our usual approach. You know, we feel, in, in a funny way, we feel defenseless approaching these things we really care about in an open way. I mean, sometimes we fear like I'll be swayed by other people's certainty. So because there's, everybody else has such a strong fixed view, the only thing I can do is counter with my own fixed view. Right? But then we get a world like we have right now where people have really strong fixed views and we feel like I need to have a fixed view. Otherwise, they're fixed because we, we mistake the fixedness, the certainty, the arrogant certainty as a kind of power. But actually, it's a kind of weakness. I'm not saying that there isn't a certain 
power on the surface that comes with a mind that's really fixed, certain, holding tight, right? There is a certain power in that, but it's a very fragile power. And it's an exhausting thing, too, because any mind, like I mentioned, that is certain, is fixed about anything. You know, it could be like, this is the best restaurant in Minneapolis. It could be something relatively superficial or unimportant. But to have to spin reality to support our fixed view is exhausting. And then when you start adding up all the things we're pretty sure about, no wonder we're exhausted. And there's, a, there's a, another aspect of this equanimity, this openness, this non-fixedness of the mind. Like I've mentioned already that we can read a lot of how things unfold precisely because the mind isn't fixed. It's open. So the sort of conditional nature, the lawful nature of how things get triggered, the causal nature, it's just more apparent from that open place than when my mind is entangled, it has opinions, it has a fixed view, an agenda, trying to make something happen. Right? We can read it a lot more. But also, the possibility, the creativity, the place for choice is so much more apparent. We can even say, I think, in terms of our mind, in terms of living our lives, that when we're not mindful in a very real sense, there's really no choice when we're not mindful. We may tell ourselves where we have a choice, but it's, it's, it doesn't really exist. Because when there's that equanimous and mindful presence, then we see the force of habit or habits, right? It's not necessarily just one habit that's getting triggered in any moment. There could be multiple habits that are getting triggered. But in that space of awareness, there can be an awareness, a recognition of those habits that have been triggered. I got to say something to this person. You know, she thinks I meant this, but that's not what I meant. So I got to, I got to make sure she gets it right because I don't want her to think I'm a jerk or I'm an idiot. So we can now, with with that sort of more spacious presence then that habit, you know, that when something's been triggered, like one of those dispositional tendencies in my mind, when it's been triggered, it doesn't arise once. It can, you know, every few seconds it will sort of, how about now? How about now? (laughs) But each time when that force of habit shows its face, And it's kind of like that about to moment. It it wants to go into thought, into speech, into action, right? Wants to be brought out into the world, manifest in the world of action. But each time, because there's that balanced presence, equanimous presence, it can feel that and it can sense creatively like, will this be helpful? Is this the appropriate thing to say or do in the moment? Or is this just going to make things tighter and more entangled or more confusing, cause more problems? And then if we see, if we sense intuitively, 
in, in morally too, right? It's an ethical place, this dynamic of karma. This is the place of ethics. In Buddhism, ethics don't come from above or from outside. It's, it's this quiet, spacious presence that can, to some degree at least, read what might be set in motion if I act this out. And in a way, we taste it morally like, is that good? Or does that cause harm for myself and others? Is that morally just to say that to my partner? You know? Or is it just wanting to hurt her because she hurt me? Right? That's the place of morality. And then we have this possibility, like when we taste, like, that's not good. That's not going to help. We have this possibility of restraint. That's such a beautiful act to say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's not going to help. And we can creatively put on the brake. No. I mean, we'd be in real trouble if we didn't know how to put on the brakes. If we just acted on impulse over and over and over again. The Buddha calls this this place the light of the world, right? That basically keeps us from being beasts. But you know, even beasts follow certain, you know, etiquette. You know, pack animals or other animals, non-human animals. You know, they have a way of dealing with power. Otherwise, they'd be eating and eating each other and killing each other, and the species wouldn't survive. So we have this force of restraint, and then the restraint allows for another response in the moment, because I've put the brakes here, and then in that space of not doing that, like I said, there are many habits. Some of those habits might be very creative. They're just not the louder of the habits. But now the loud habit that wasn't very skillful I've restrained. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I've tasted it. I've looked at it. I've felt into it. And I sense morally, ethically, it's not going to be helpful for myself or for anyone to say that, to do that. So in the space of equanimity, I can just feel what I'm feeling. I'm feeling the impulse to do it. But as I feel the impulse to do it, there's also now this moral impulse that says, honey, don't do that. Right? And they kind of equal and opposite forces. And if both arise, we're fortunate because then we won't act it. But if the one arises without wisdom, without that space of wisdom, because it's that space of wisdom that isn't confused by the impulse. It doesn't get identified. It realizes, I mean, this is such a deep insight to realize just because we're thinking it doesn't mean it's skillful, right? And the thing is, if we don't understand our thoughts are impersonal, then we're going to unconsciously assume, if I'm thinking it, I must want to do it. But from this point of view of open, equanimous, wise, spacious mindfulness, right? the thoughts the urges, the impulses, they're real. We're responsible for them, but they're definitely not personal. They are arising because of what's been conditioned. You know, I often joke that in my life, being I was born in 1958, so 
you know, a lot of the cultural imprints came from Leave it to Beaver, my three sons, my mother the car, get smart. <laughs> a little bit later in the 60s, the monkeys, you know, bewitched. And, you know, on and on. And, and then my parents grew up on farms in North Dakota and Montana, you know, children of recent immigrants growing up in the Depression. And then they, you know, I got their, whatever was reverberating from their lives, then as parents, that imprint. And then all of that, then you get this, right? This mind with these tendencies. So this, uh, this very potent, this very alive, it's bright, it's meditation. What we're doing in meditation is what we want to do all day long. It's not a dull, trance-like state. We're trying to be relaxed. The relaxation in the mind and the body is reflecting the non-judgment. Like we're taking refuge in the awareness, not in the doing. Now there's going to be a lot of doing energy, but we're not acting it out in terms of speaking in our formal sitting time, of course. We're not acting it out. We're not acting it out in terms of speaking or acting, doing things, right? We're just sitting still in a relaxed way. So then we get to see it precisely because we're choosing not to act it out. It just becomes so apparent. I want to get up and leave. You know, I want to do this. I want to do that. It's so interesting. One of the great things about sitting in a group is you're less likely to do all those things that you're feeling, (laughs) right? Because it would be embarrassing. But I was just on a two and a half day retreat out of at uh, Prairie Farm, it's a town in western Wisconsin where we all, the community, owns a retreat property, beautiful place, an hour and a half out of town. You should get out there, take a look at the website. Now we're just starting uh, the registration for the March practice period. The whole month of March you can get out there. I think most of the month is still open. It's like a family-style retreat with time for study, mostly in silence. But it's all described on the website. But anyway, I was out for two and a half days, Thursday through Saturday, midday. And, you know, it's real interesting because I was there alone. Nobody was out there at the time. And so, you know, when I'm sitting or doing my walking practice, and then my mind says, how about a cup of tea? Or, you know, has anybody sent me an email? Am I allowed to look at my computer? Well, no, they won't know. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's like all these things are in play because nobody's watching. But we're watching, right? So the karmic imprint is here. So in that open space, it's like we really, that's why we really uh, trust this ritual of sitting meditation because it's, it creates this container where for that 30 minutes or for that hour, for some of you, maybe just 10 minutes a day, but for your sitting period, you take up the ritual. I'm not, you know, I'm on purpose not being a doer. I'm sitting. I'm that's doing something, I know. <laughs> but I'm restricting myself from other kinds of doing. And in order, I'm taking the, this ritual up to strengthen this value, this intention in taking refuge in the awareness, in the equanimous, the spacious, the open, 
the non-judging, the non-fixed, but continuous awareness of the present moment. And then that awareness sees that things are coming and going. Thoughts come and go. Urges come and go. Sensations come and go. Sounds come and go. Sights come and go. Everything is coming and going. And to the degree that we can hang and hang out in that space of non-doing, just knowing, being aware, then we really start to have insight in how it all works. And then it just feeds back into the confidence of staying in that middle place, that open place. Not trying to get something, but not retreating. Some meditation practices, and and these are good to learn too, are really about retreating from all this activity. So sometimes, for example, we won't be in this really dynamic place where thoughts are coming and going and we're noticing the sounds and we're noticing all the different sensations. It's just too much. There's not enough calm. So then we might really limit the scope of our awareness, right? So some of you do this sometimes in your meditation. It's like, I'm not going to pay attention to anything but the tip of my nostrils and I'm going to feel the air touching as it goes in and I'm going to feel the air touching the nostrils as it goes out. Some of you feel your breath down in the belly and you feel that gentle expansion as the breath is coming in and that gentle contraction of the uh, abdomen as the breath is going out. And you're basically using a more directed and exclusive meditation object in order to get some more calm. Because when the mind is in a more open, not fixed, not directing, not exclusively aware practice, then it's, it's a place for a lot of insight, but it takes practice. So we have this great you know, array of teachings. When we're finding it difficult to be in that open space, then we might have a more exclusive meditation object, like a loving-kindness phrase. May all beings, may this heart be happy. May all beings be happy. And just, we use the phrase, we use an image maybe, but ultimately we're just using that expansive feeling of love as our meditation object. Or, like I said, the breath as a specific meditation object. Or even the sensations of the whole body, but not letting the attention go outside of the chosen, exclusive meditation object. So that's why in the meditation tonight I called that the working ground. Or sometimes people call it an anchor, a meditation anchor or meditation object. So we have this stance where we might have a more exclusive meditation object like the breath and the body. And with that more exclusive object, they're more easy to feel some calm. And when you're feeling calm and tranquil, then you know what equanimity is like. Right? You can be with your breath, your exclusive meditation object, with a lot of equanimity, a lot of contentment, a lot of not needing the moment to be different than it is. Right? So then that's a time in your practice, let's say you have another 10 minutes to go in your half an hour, then maybe open the awareness up. So now instead of staying with your exclusive meditation object, 
now you're also noticing the whole body. And maybe you're also noticing hearing. And maybe you're also noticing seeing. Even if your eyes are closed, there's still visual objects coming and going, right? Mental images coming and going. Or maybe you're practicing with your eyes open, which is totally fine. And you're noticing thoughts coming and going, right? So you, you take the equanimity, the stability, the sense of contentedness that you get with a more exclusive meditation object, and then you take it on the road where everything belongs. The mind is open to the wider field of experience. This is what you're going to have to do anyway when your sit's over, right? Because then your kind of eyes are open, you're moving through the world, you're interacting with other people, you've got to do things. Every time you see something, every time you interact with somebody, all of your dispositional or a lot of your dispositional history, all those past impressions, some of them are getting triggered, right? And you're getting defensive or you're getting greedy or you're getting, you know, irritated. So you're going to have to practice with these multiple sense experiences coming and going. So it's good to practice that in your set. So once you've sort of learned a few things, been around the block a few times, a couple months at least, maybe a year or so into your practice, then you should feel pretty fluent along the spectrum. So some sit, some days, because there's a lot of agitation, your sit, your 30-minute sit, let's say, is going to be mostly about an exclusive meditation. And you're, because you've been practicing for a while, your mind will like your primary meditation object, whether it's your breath at your nostrils or your breath in the belly or your whole body, some people use hearing as their primary meditation object, or it might be a loving kindness, compassion practice. We do that here at the center. The first Friday of the month, we teach the different flavors of loving kindness practice. So you can, you can learn those here. And other times, you're doing a really wide open practice. You might even, on purpose, practice with your eyes open. You're still sitting still relaxed, but you're not directing your attention anywhere. So the meditation object, so to speak, is whatever is showing up in that moment, whatever is predominant, whatever the attention in the mind is attending to, that's your meditation object. You're doing really the same thing, it's just that you're not directing your attention back to meditation object, right? You're not returning. You don't have to return. Because in open awareness practice, any object of awareness will do. What are we practicing doing? Being open. Noticing that whatever that visual object is, that auditory object is, that mental object is, like a thought or an emotion, sensation is, whatever it is, it's something that comes and goes, something that's being known. So we're taking refuge in the openness we're taking refuge in the non-attachment or in what we sometimes say in Buddhism in the wisdom, in the wise view that it's just stuff coming and going, just mental and physical stuff rolling on, just the movement of the body and the mind. And it's impersonal. 
we're responsible for it, but we're not doing it. We're not doing our thoughts. We're not doing our emotions. We're not doing our sensations. In a sense, in a relative sense, we say, I'm responsible for my thoughts. I'm responsible for my emotions and my sensations and my sights and the sounds I'm hearing. I'm responsible to be sensitive and to be skillful to not set emotion harm for myself and others as a human being, right? But what's showing up as sight, as sound, as sensation, as thought, as emotion? That's arising due to causes and conditions. And I guarantee you, I did not. There is no mark that determined all of those causes and conditions that are now manifesting as my present moment experience. They arose conditionally in an interdependent, interdependent way, right? Many, many different causes and conditions that said all of this that I call me or my life or this dynamic of mind and body in motion. So what we're doing is we're learning to be right in the middle of it. Now, like I said, and I'll just end with this comment, equanimity isn't something we can do because we just end up faking it like, okay, be equanimous. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just stuff happening. You know, we'll try to like tell ourselves that it doesn't matter. Tell ourselves not to be attached. Don't be attached. But it's just another attachment. You know, it's just another thing the mind is clinging to. We're fixed or attached to the idea of not being attached or attached to the idea of being equanimous. So equanimity arises naturally, conditionally, right? And it happens when there's this little paradigm shift. Well, it's not really little. Initially, it's quite profound. But over time, it becomes very natural. It's a little paradigm shift where the normal kind of habit mind is to be very obsessed with, very identified with the objects of our experience. We take every object personally. Every time I see somebody, I think something, I feel something. It's me. I'm feeling that. I'm seeing that. I'm recognizing more sitting in front of me. So it's, it's got like this personal uh, power because it, it's me. It's mine. It belongs to... It's about my life. And the shift is when the mind, instead of fixing on the objects that are showing up in experience, becomes much more interested and taking refuge in the awareness. It's something being seen, something being felt, something being known. It's just something being known. Right? Life is something being known. Like, am I living my life? Like, today is Sunday evening. Do I need to have the idea that there's a mark here doing Sunday evening? Or can I, in a sense, and these are just words, but it creates a sense of, can I rest in the awareness that this is being known? Whatever this is, Mark living his life, Mark giving a talk, it's just something being known. Right? See that, that sense of space, that whatever that life that's being lived right now that you're experiencing, it's just something being known. Can this be okay? 
just something being known. Can this be okay? So equanimity naturally, organically arises out of the deepening of this insight. And one way to think about, talk about this insight is learning to take refuge, learning to trust this awareness. First, we have to realize there is awareness. Awareness is never distinct from the objects that are being known, right? But in the dynamic of something being known, we can side with the is being known, you know, the uh, object, or we can side with the is being known. Does that make sense? So we're shifting. We, as ordinary, untrained human beings, we're always siding with the objects that are being known. They seem seem to be what's relevant, the object of my experience, my thought, the sensations I'm feeling. But we can train the mind through being interested to start resting in the is-being-known part, in the awareness part. And this develops the equanimity, and the equanimity allows for the deepening of wisdom or understanding or insight. There's no spiritual insight, spiritual growth or transformation or liberation or whatever you want to call it, without being able to hang out in this middle space, what we call open, equanimous, non-judging, clear, continuous awareness. If we can't spend some time in that place, insight won't arise. And we'll be stuck in doing the same things, getting the same results. That sort of destiny for a human being that doesn't do undertake some kind of training to be able to spend more and more of their time in that open space. And so sitting practice is like kindergarten. It's where we learn to be in that open space so we can do it all day long because it's just a lot harder when we're moving the body and interacting and that dispositional history is being triggered because of what we're seeing and what we're doing and thinking but in a more simplified environment when we're sitting relatively still in a pleasant, hopefully a pleasant place with fewer distractions, it's just easier to develop confidence to rest in that openness, in that spaciousness of awareness that's clear and bright, interested, but relaxed, not trying to get anything, not fixing, not trying to be dependent, get somewhere, get rid of something, but just in the awareness itself. So I'll leave it here. We have uh, about 12 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you what you've been learning, what you'd like to share with the group around equanimity, times in your life maybe when you have felt a lot of equanimity, what do you sense were the causes, the supports, or when you're really reactive, the opposite of equanimity really fixed or caught. What are the causes for that? Now, on Sunday nights, we usually record. So tonight we're recording. So keep that in mind if you'd like to share that we will be putting this talk and the discussion up on the website for others to listen to. Who'd like to begin? Hi, uh, my name is Snowden. And uh, I guess you brought up earlier that these times we're in are fairly 
certain for lack of a better term, or there's very hard forces out there. And, um, I can sense it inside because more than any other time in my life, I feel more certain, I guess, in, in response to some of these things. And I guess what I'm wondering is what is equanimity when it comes towards ethics that I feel are true? Um, I don't believe like being, you know, equanimous means giving up white supremacy is wrong. Um, but what what is the response to something that you view as a negative hard force that is both equanimous and yet not giving up, I guess? I, I mean, it's a struggle every day. You get up and you see something from someone that you feel is very wrong. I'm trying not to make this too political or anything. but like, yeah, No, no, no. It's appropriate. And so I guess I feel like is it maybe I have to take the ego out of it? Is that part of what makes it less um, or more equanimous is if it's more – I not i believe this is true but this is true beside myself so any i guess advice on that yeah no and it's and it's really important not just with the political issues that are moving right now but really all of our places like having a healthy relationship or raising kids or you know all the places we're pouring our heart and that and the interesting thing to begin to explore in all of those places is Whatever you're learning in your formal sitting time, then bring it to those places and really approach as best you can. It won't be perfect, of course. That kind of open space, the non-fixed mind. And what you'll see happen is a force of love or compassion, whatever you want to call it. It will arise and it will lead it to action. And it will be stronger and more powerful than moving into these places with a fixed idea based on hate or greed, right? So it's not about non-action. It's really about where the, the quality of the motivation or what the motive, motivation, the motive force feels like. Is it tight? Because love isn't tight. Like when we respond to injustice with love and compassion, fierce compassion, just to sort of make this point, When we're uh, certain, just to kind of be provocative, when we're certain about the wholesomeness of our motivation, like we really feel, we trust. It's not about hating. It's not about demonizing. It's not about needing there to be an enemy. It's about caring. It's about wanting to make the world a better place or wanting to help somebody who needs our help, somebody who's being oppressed in some way. We don't need to demonize. We don't need to be in opposition. Even though somebody else might be putting, our, putting us in an opposing camp, that's what they're doing. That's happening in their heart. We don't have to pick that up. We don't have to be in opposition to engage this world. It just seems that way. And that's clearly the habits in all of our minds. And it's easier, of course, to learn this in simple, more simple, um, less charged places and gain some confidence so that in the more, the places that have more intensity, because we're affected by the certainty of the other groups involved. And it's really hard. Like I've been to a number of the marches recently, and uh, mostly I felt like a lot of positive energy. But, you know, there's always, there's some sort of hate, some fixed ideas. 
And, you know, and I've mentioned this last week, or I'm not sure it was since Sunday evening, but, you know, I've really noticed my mind when I'm watching some of the political comedy these days and about what's actually happening in my mind and the divisiveness. And I kind of like it because on the surface there's a lot of juiciness in the self-righteousness and in the certainty that goes with that. But do we really want to be feeding on that? And when I'm really honest, and like this morning, for example, I watched uh, Saturday Night Live when I got up because it's, you know, on, you can get it on YouTube or somewhere. I forget where. <laughs> Probably NBC's website. And, uh, and then, you know, and then I came here and sat for an hour and then did the Sunday morning. And then I sat some more during the Sunday morning program. And I just noticed during my hour sit just the reverberation from that. I mean, it's relatively wholesome stuff, but there is so much of this gravitational pull into two camps. So even if you're not watching any, reading any news, and not talking politics with anybody, we're just in the soup. So even if you're not engaging the swirl, your mind, your heart's being affected by the polarization. can't help it. And then if you are doing some reading and if you are doing some activist work, then you're definitely going to be affected by these very powerful forces, divisive forces. So we have to be really confident there's another way, that love is the way. And love doesn't make us weak. I mean, that's what we need. That's what we need leadership to be saying. Love does not make us weak. Hate does not make us strong. Really, that's what we need. But it's really hard in the moment. So we need community, and we need to train when the situation is more simple. Like when I'm sitting here stewing with self-righteousness in a sit, it's so clear that that's not helping. (laughs) But when we're talking politics, it seems like in a strange way like it's helping. But it's not. It's, It's sowing the seeds for more hate, and more division. And this is what we have to really address. Thanks, Snowden, for bringing that up. It's really great to bring it into the space tonight. Time for other reflections? Yeah, Jared. Um, <clears throat> thanks for that question, and thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, my name's Jared. Um, I, um, I had one thing to say until you started talking about that, um, and I guess I'll make it a combination. Um, <clears throat> so I have found myself... Um, as I've been re-engaging in this practice, um, being very reactionary. Um, and I notice as I go about my day, you know, I usually come here in the morning, um, and I have a calmness about me throughout the day, um, until I reach about a certain point in the afternoon. Um, and then things just kind of get out of control and, um, it's as if um, I have been in this trance-like state that you were talking about um, where I'm just kind of going about my day and I will find myself, you know, uh, every once in a while just having the realization that I've been doing these things and been attentive to the things that I have to do to go about my day, but I haven't, there hasn't been much thinking going on along with it. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, I find myself just like bubbling up with emotion and being very reactionary. Um, so I don't know if there's really a question behind this. Um, I know we've, we've talked about this in, um, 
practice meetings about this kind of re-engaging in the practice and what it can do as far as bring bringing up emotions and whatnot um but i guess just i'm not asking if it's normal i'm just asking if there's um something i can do to make um make that reactionary state a little bit less uh i don't know like gripping right um and i guess the other thing i was thinking when you were when you were commenting about um the activism and feeling like you want to be present and you want to be involved um i have many times just uh found myself making random comments to friends or people around me with the very real um very real purpose behind it of just getting a reaction out of somebody right um and just kind of making my stance known to people around me just because i feel like for some reason that's important um when it's really not and it's not helpful um but other times i've i've found and i think this this is why i find this practice so rewarding for me is times when i can i can really practice um on my effort and not be attached to the outcome that comes along with that effort. Um, and I find that to be especially true in times like, in times like this in the political, um, you know, atmosphere that we're, de- we're dealing with. If I can, if I can take actions that I feel good about, but not be attached to, um, the reaction that other people are going to have to that, um, some kind of outcome that's going to come from it, but really do it out of a place of just kind of love and compassion and from my own, you know, from my own heart, not personalizing it, but just kind of doing what I feel, um, yeah, without, you know, without being crushed if I don't, you know, get the response that I'm looking for or if things don't work out the way that they're supposed to, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how I always feel like I have to have some kind of opposition out there. I have to have something, you know, battling back at me to really feel justified in what I'm doing most of the time. Yeah, that's um, how we feel alive is in that opposition. And your definition, I mean, you really gave the definition of love because it has that quality of generosity where the goodness of doing something from love is in the offering it. So you don't, there doesn't need to be results. This is, but of course, you're doing it to help. But the beauty of it was in the engagement. So that's why it feels complete no matter what happens. And this is what we need, you know, in terms of real political, social, economic, environmental change, right, spiritual change. We have to be in it for the long run. Even if the long run is like, we won't see the results. We just need to keep engaging it. So if it isn't sort of feeding, if it isn't beautiful in and of itself, we're not going to do it. Right? It has to have that sense of this is good to do no matter what. And back to your earlier point about this is sort of what I was saying you know, when describing that array of practice from having a more exclusive, directed attention to more open So one way to really help with that is use your formal sit to develop greater quiet, stillness, concentration, peace. But don't just get up from that space. So save at least five or ten minutes at the end, if not a bigger part of your sit, and maybe open your eyes 
and prepare for the transition. That doesn't mean you think about the day that's about to happen, but it means you're not on purpose directing your attention away from anything. You're not controlling what's going on in your experience. You're just sitting there, not controlling, not doing. So whatever shows up is allowed to show up. And you're practicing being clearly aware and relaxed, not judging, not getting tight. This is being known. You're taking refuge in the knowing and not in what's showing up and being known. Make sense? So I really encourage people to do to have that open awareness be some part of their daily sitting practice. Because otherwise, you can kind of get yourself in a corner where you become more and more dependent on that part of meditation that's about retreating from the world. That's a really good skill to have, to be able to put your attention on your breath and then onto the calm and then onto the peace. And you're literally, this is exactly what we do in concentration practice, we're withdrawing the mind from sense experience. The mind is withdrawing into itself. It's noticing the peace of the mind that's not agitated by sense experience. And that's the object of awareness, the peace of the mind that has withdrawn. But that's not a strategy for being a human being. That's a strategy for experiencing some deep state of calm. And then with that calm, you want to see, like I mentioned, the equanimity from that calm. Can Now can I maintain that non-reactivity when I start to open up to more sense experience, like feeling my body, seeing what I'm seeing, hearing what I'm hearing, having thoughts about the day come and go. I'm not on purpose thinking about anything, but I'm not restricting the mind from thinking either. Everything has permission to move, everything. And I'm just practicing being right in the middle and taking refuge in the awareness. Oh, this is being numb. Oh, this is being numb. This despicable thought is being known. This beautiful, sublime thought is being known. The purest love is being known. The most intense hate is being known. Whatever it is, it's just something being known. But uh, we'll pick up the conversation again next week. But let's just take a time to take one or two breaths together. It's okay to let go of the words. Appreciate the space in the mind. Appreciating our spiritual ancestors, all those folks, they had busy lives, they lived at difficult times, and yet somehow they did their practice. And in that way, one generation after another, These wise teachings have been passed down, and now it's our turn. No excuses to develop this wisdom, this compassion, so that we can, our lives can be the causes for real peace and liberation from suffering. We can pass it down, pass these teachings down to the next generations. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.